All right. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. We are continuing our series in uh, Ecclesiology, the Doctrine of the Church. And uh, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about baptism. We talked about the meaning and history of baptism. And then we talked about the mode and candidates for baptism last week. Uh, This week and next week, we are going to be jumping into communion. What is communion? What does it mean? What does it stand for? So this week, we're going to do communion in church history to give you a grid. What have Christians traditionally thought about communion? There's several different views. And then next week, Jeff is going to be talking about communion in the New Testament. So we're going to kind of give you uh, historical, theological, and then uh, biblical on, uh, on this lesson. And that way, you can then fit those verses into a paradigm or a pattern that you've already been given. So with that in mind, let's start with our definition of communion. What is communion? An enduring ordinance instituted by Christ, whereby Christians regularly partake of a sacred meal of bread and wine to fellowship with other Christians, remember Jesus' atoning sacrifice, look forward to the joy of Christ's coming, and personally partake of and fellowship with Christ himself. I'm going to read that again because it's an excellent definition, and it has all these facets for communion. An enduring ordinance instituted by Christ, whereby Christians regularly partake of a sacred meal of bread and wine to fellowship with other Christians, remember Jesus' atoning sacrifice, Look forward to the joy of Christ coming and personally partake of and fellowship with Christ himself. If you want an excellent short little book on communion, uh, N.T. Wright has one called The Meal Jesus Gave Us. It is less than 100 pages. It is really small. It's more of like a pamphlet, but it is a really helpful uh, little booklet on understanding uh, communion from a first century perspective. So I'd uh, recommend that to you. Now, communion has a bunch of different names, okay? It is called several things. It's called communion because we commune with God and one another. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Table. It's called the breaking of bread. When it talks about the uh, apostles and the early church getting together and breaking bread, typically they would have a meal together, like a full-blown meal, and then part of that meal would also uh, be uh, communion. Uh, My favorite term for communion is the Eucharist. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe that sounds kind of high church uh, liturgical for you, the Eucharist. Uh, The Greek word eucharisteo means I give thanks. And so Jesus gives thanks and he breaks the bread and we give thanks when we partake of it and that is why it is called the Eucharist. It's called in the early church the love feast, the agape, the love feast uh, is one of the things that it's called. It's called the fellowship meal. It's called a bunch of other things. Roman Catholics will call it the sacrament of the altar, which I uh, would not agree with because I uh, don't think Jesus is being re-sacrificed on the altar. But after all, I'm a Protestant. Welcome to Parkway where we are Protestant. So, Let me give you the four differing views on Christ's presence in communion. So when we talk about communion, the big debates in church history all center around what does it mean when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, okay? Can we all agree that this is an important thing? Jesus is uh, instituting communion. He's linking it somehow to his body and blood. And what the church does is they debate over exactly what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. This becomes such a point of contention. This is the issue that makes the reformers not work together. Okay? So guys like Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, these, these first-generation reformers during the Reformation, will agree on like 95% of things. But this debate over communion is so important and so central it leads them to not work together. Luther says of Zwingli, he's not even a Christian. He's not even of the same spirit because he doesn't hold my view of communion. So it's a big divisive issue. Luther's wrong, by the way. It's a big divisive issue uh, when it comes to church history. So I want to give you the four different views of what does it mean when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. So here's the first one. 
The first one is the Catholic view, and it is called transubstantiation. How about that phrase, okay? Impress your friends. Tweet out something later about transubstantiation, and uh, everyone will think you're a nerd. Now, what is that view? That is the view that the bread and wine are transformed into the literal, material body and blood of Jesus, and they cease to be bread and wine. So let me be very clear what they're saying. The term transubstantiation means this, that the substance, what communion really is, transes, it changes, okay? That's why it's called transubstantiation. The substance changes, and it is no longer bread and wine, okay? Don't let the fact that it tastes like bread fool you. Don't let the fact that it crumbles in your mouth like bread fool you. Don't let the fact that if you drink enough communion wine, you can get drunk fool you, because it is actually the literal, material, physical body and blood of Jesus in Roman Catholicism, okay? Now, if you say, Zach, that, that seems crazy. That seems crazy. Why, why can't they just see that it's bread and wine? Can't you take the bread and put it under a microscope and show that it has the properties of bread? If you're saying that, it's because you don't understand what they're saying, okay? You have to understand a little bit about philosophy before this makes sense to you. You have to understand a little bit about Aristotle. So let me, uh, let me do this as quickly and, and painlessly as I can. Something's essence or something's substance is what it really is. Okay, I've used this example before. So let's say I have a table, and it's a flat table, it's brown, and it has four legs, okay? If I take off one of the legs, is it still a table? Yes or no? Yeah, there are three-legged tables, okay? What if I take off two of the legs and lean it against a wall? Is it still a table? Sure, yeah, it's still a table. What if I take off all the legs and I just put a flat piece of wood on the ground? Now is it a table or is now is it just a piece of wood on the ground? Ugh, it's hard to tell, okay? Or let's say I take Jeff, okay? He's standing in the back. Let's say I take Jeff and we change his hair color. Is he still Jeff? Sure. Let's say we completely remove all of his hair. Is he still Jeff? Yes. If he, you know, loses an arm in a car wreck, is he still Jeff? If he had been born a woman, is he still Jeff? Ooh, now it's a little trickier, okay? All we're dealing with with these different examples are what are known as accidents. We don't know Jeff's essence. We don't know what actually it is that Jeff is, and we don't actually know a table's true essence. We don't know what it really is. All we get to observe are what are known as accidents. There are these things that we can actually see about it. We get to see the brownness of the table. We can feel that it's uh, solid. We can wrap our knuckles against it, and it makes a sound. But we can't see tableness, nor can we see Jeffness. We can only see things about it. So what the Roman Catholics are going to say is we, the, the accidents are not what changes. It still has the accidents of bread and wine and these kind of things, but its essence, what it really is, its substance is really what changes, okay? So they will separate something's accidents, how you observe it, taste it, feel it, your senses, from what it really is, okay? Now, Aristotle, by the way, would have never done that. I think that's a misinterpretation of Aristotle, but anyway, that's the idea. So just to make this as clearly as possible, Roman Catholics believe when they bless the elements for communion, when it's blessed by a priest or a bishop, that they are no longer bread and wine, despite what it looks like to you, that they are the literal, material body and blood of Jesus, okay? Now, additionally, you need to understand this because this is huge, and this is really the point that Luther takes offense at uh, with uh, Roman Catholicism. They believe that you are re-sacrificing, in a sense, Jesus every time you partake of communion. They believe that it is an offering. They believe that it is a sacrifice, okay? Jesus died once on a cross with a bloody sacrifice, Every time that you partake of the Eucharist and the Mass in Roman Catholicism, they believe that there is a, quote, bloodless sacrifice, 
okay? But that you are still, there's still a sense in which Jesus is being offered up again for your sins, for your sanctification, for your justification, even in Roman Catholicism, and for your holiness. And so when you partake of communion, you're not just being encouraged, you're somehow participating in a, a continual new atoning work of Jesus when you partake of it, okay? That's going to be something that the Reformers are going to, that's going to make them see red. They're going to point out the fact that in Hebrews, it's very clear that Jesus has suffered and died once for sins. Now, he's resurrected. Now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, whatever that means, okay? He's not being sacrificed every week when you partake of communion. Now, I'll give you another fun thing. Y'all ever heard of the phrase hocus pocus? What is that? What is hocus pocus? It's like a witch saying or something, right? Right? So uh, maybe you're a magician and you're like a hocus pocus and you pull a rabbit out of a hat or something like that. Where does the phrase hocus pocus come from? Well, in Roman Catholicism, when they, they bless the elements in communion, they say hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. They say it in Latin, hoc est corpus meum. Well, hoc est corpus Sounds like hocus pocus. And so what a lot of people think is that that phrase was actually a Protestant mocking of Roman Catholicism. You can imagine two Protestants talking together and they're like, yeah, those Catholics, they get up there and they're like, oh, hocus corpus. And then all of a sudden it turns into Jesus' body and blood. That's where the phrase comes from, okay? So have Protestants and Catholics always been nice to each other? They have not. They have not, okay? So that's the first view, that the, uh, the bread and the wine are no longer there despite what it looks like that it is only two elements there, and those two elements are just Jesus's, like, oh, positive blood, I don't know what type of blood he had, and his physical Jewish skin, okay? Traditionally, that's also one of the reasons in Roman Catholicism why you don't chew the wafer. You let the wafer dissolve in your mouth. Why? Because you don't want to chew the Lord, okay? Second view, the view of Lutheranism and the view of Martin Luther himself, what is known as consubstantiation. Transubstantiation is where the substance trans is. It changes. Consubstantiation is where uh, the substance is with uh, the bread and the wine. Christ's body and blood are with the elements. Okay? So here's the definition. The bread and the wine contain the physical body and blood of Jesus, though they remain bread and wine. So let me just say it this way. In Roman Catholicism, how many elements are there? Two. What are they? Body and blood. In Lutheranism, how many elements are there? Four. Body, blood, bread, and wine. So what's so funny is Luther's like, transubstantiation is ridiculous, all these things these Catholics are doing, but he doesn't think it's ridiculous for the same reason you do. He thinks Jesus is very much materially present in the elements. The reason he thinks it's ridiculous is he still thinks that the bread and the wine stay there. That's not the concern we have. The concern we have is eating Jesus. The concern Luther has is that the bread and the wine go away, and that it's a sacrifice. Those are the two things he doesn't like, okay? So this is very similar to a view in the Middle Ages called impanation. Here's the idea. Imagine that you have metal, okay? And you heat up that metal till it's glowing orange. That heat and that glowingness is all throughout the metal. It's not the same thing as the metal. Heat is not the same thing as metal, but it is all throughout the metal, okay? That's kind of Luther's view when it comes to communion, that Christ's body and blood is in under, around, and all throughout the elements. Or think of a sponge filled with water. A sponge is different than water. I don't know if you know that or not, but go try to drink a dry sponge, okay? They're not the same. But if you stick a sponge in water, the water is all throughout the sponge. That's the way that Luther and Lutheranism, even today, today excuse me, <clears throat> thinks of uh, communion, where Christ's body and blood, his literal, material, physical, Jewish body and blood is all throughout the elements of communion. Okay? 
That is the Lutheran view. So what's interesting is a lot of people don't understand this, that Luther's view is actually very similar to the Roman Catholic view. He doesn't think it's a sacrifice. That's the thing he has the biggest problem with. And he thinks that the bread and the wine actually stay there, okay? Next, the Reformed view, the view of Calvin. What is that view? Somehow, you are mysteriously and truly partaking of the whole person of Christ as you eat the bread and drink the wine in faith, but you are not partaking of him materially like the above views. Here's what Calvin wants to do. Calvin wants to say that this is my body and this is my blood means something, okay? It's not just a symbol. Calvin wants to say that somehow when you're partaking of communion, you are somehow partaking of the whole Christ. You can't cut Christ into parts. You can't be Nestorian. You can't say you're just spiritually partaking of him but not materially. If you partake of or worship Christ, you're worshiping the whole Christ. But what Calvin's trying to say is not the same thing as the other two guys. The other two guys are saying that you are materially eating Jesus with your teeth. Calvin wants to say, no, the focus is more that you're participating with Christ. You're you're communing with Christ. You're somehow partaking of him, but it's mysterious. It's not material. It's through faith, okay? So let me say it this way. For Luther and the Catholics, if you're a lost person and you partake of communion, are you still really partaking in Jesus' body and blood? Yes, you are. Calvin would say if you're a lost person, you're doing it to your condemnation, by the way, if you're a lost person with Catholicism and Lutheranism, but you're still really ingesting Christ. Calvin would say that that's not the case. Calvin would say that the elements have no benefit to you unless you have faith, that you're participating with Christ through faith, and so you must be a believer and you must have faith. The elements do nothing in and of themselves for the person who doesn't have faith, which is ironic considering his view of infant baptism, but anyway, uh, that's his view. Okay, that you are somehow, when you're partaking of communion, you're somehow communing with, fellowshipping with, partaking of Christ, though if you try to pin Calvin down, he, it's hard to do. He always uses this term mystery. It's a mystery. You're mysteriously partaking. You're truly partaking of him, but if you push me into a corner, I can't tell you how. Okay? Calvin says this, I indeed admit that the breaking of bread is a symbol. Everybody agrees it's a symbol. The question is, is it only a symbol, by the way? I indeed admit that the breaking of bread is a symbol. But having admitted this, we shall nevertheless duly infer that by the showing of the symbol, the thing itself is also shown. For unless a man means to call God a deceiver, he would never dare assert that an empty symbol is set before him. Therefore, if the Lord truly represents the participation uh, in his body through the breaking of bread, there ought not to be the least doubt that he truly presents and shows his body. Here's what Calvin's saying. If you say that communion is just a symbol, then God is a liar because he's given you an empty symbol. Where in the Bible does God ever give an empty symbol? The symbol is always linked to the thing it symbolizes, okay? The symbol is always linked to the thing it symbolizes. Now, another thing you need to understand in Calvin is this. God has given communion to help us in our weakness, okay? So for Zwingli, communion is this promise you're making to God. For Calvin, the focus is more on this promise that God is making to you. So here's an example I I used in theological equipping a few weeks ago, but I think it's helpful. So let's say... I'm going to go out of town, and I'm going to fly out of town, and my three-year-old son, Judah, is really sad that daddy's leaving. And I say, hey, buddy, I've got to be gone for a few days, but then I'm going to come back. And he looks at me with big, his big eyes and big tears in his eyes, and he's like, but daddy, how do I know that you'll come back? What do you mean, how do you know that I come back? I'm not a liar. Of course I'm going to come back, okay? But he says, but what if you don't? I'm like, well, what do you mean, what if I don't? Just take me at my word. I'm not a bad father. I'm a good father, and I'm not lying to you. I'm going to go, and then I'm going to come back. And he just can't seem to grasp that because he's three. He's weak. He doesn't have all the, uh, the knowledge and intellectual capacity and all of that. So what I do is I take a copy of my plane ticket, and I print it off, and I give it to him. 
And I say, anytime you think that daddy won't come back, I want you to look at that plane ticket as a way to strengthen your faith, as a reminder that daddy's not a liar and that I'm going to come back, okay? That's kind of what Calvin thinks of. He doesn't use an airplane example. That's kind of what Calvin thinks of when he thinks of communion. We should just be able to take God at his word. When he says we're forgiven, when he says he loves us, when he says we have fellowship with him, when he says that we're forgiven, when he says Christ's blood was shed for us, we should just be able to take him at his word. But because we're humans and because we're fallible and because we're weak, what God does in the elements of communion is he prints off that ticket and he says, whenever you doubt that this is true, here's something that you can taste. Here's something you can smell. Here's something that you can touch. God does the same thing in baptism. Because we're sensory creatures, God has given us these two ordinances, which are sensory, to help us in our weak faith, okay? Ideas can be kicked around in the mind. When Jesus wanted to give his disciples something, he didn't just give them ideas. He gave them a meal, okay? A chance for you to taste the gospel, a chance for you to uh, taste forgiveness. That's kind of the idea there. Now, the last view, and this is the view that many of you uh, probably hold if you grew up Baptist, is uh, the Zwinglian view, the view of Ulrich Zwingli. It's what's called the memorial view. Here is the view, that you are symbolically partaking in the benefits of the body and blood of Christ as you remember what his death has accomplished for you. So the focus for Zwingli is more on that it's a memorial. It's something to help you remember. It's not that there's a real presence of Christ in the elements. It's not that uh, uh, you're so much partaking in Christ uh, in the, either the Reformed, Lutheran, or Catholic sense. The focus is more that it is a memorial. It's something that you're remembering. Now, Zwingli does think it's more than a memorial, so sometimes he gets put in the wrong uh, category there, but he focuses more on that aspect of it, okay? He says this, in the words, this is my body, the word this means the bread, and the word body means the body that is put to death for us. Therefore, the word is cannot be taken literally, for the bread is not the body and cannot be. Necessarily, then, it must be taken figuratively or metaphorically. This is my body means this bread signifies my body, okay? So what, uh, what Zwingli is saying is imagine being the disciples in that, up, in that room where you're partaking of communion. As soon as Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he can't mean his actual body and blood. He, he's not crucified yet, okay? He's passing around a cup that's just wine, and he's passing around bread that's just bread. <clears throat> it can't also be that he's talking about it literally being his body and blood. When Luther and uh, Zwingli write against each other on this issue, I've read their correspondence, they go back and forth on this issue. Luther says, stop being a liberal. This is means is. You have to take it literally unless you have a reason to think otherwise, okay? Zwingli writes back and says, what are you talking about? Jesus says, I am the door. I am the vine. He says he's a lot of things. We don't take those literally. They're metaphors, right? Luther's like, you're the worst. Why do you deny Jesus' words? And Zwingli's like, why do you deny Jesus' humanity? If he is raised and he's truly human, his humanity cannot be everywhere, Calvin would say his deity can be everywhere, but his humanity cannot be everywhere. And so they fight each other on these issues. Now, which view is correct? And then I'm going to give you something helpful and pastoral. You're like, oh, man, here's a bunch of weird guys talking about weird stuff. I've got something practical coming for you. Which view is correct? Now, I'll tell you where I land. Uh, and by the way, I'm fine if you hold uh, options three and four. I'm, I'm maybe okay if you hold option two. I'm not okay if you hold option one. Uh, I think that the Reformed view, number three, is actually correct, Okay. Why do I hold that? Because I think communion is surely symbolic, but it is more than just a symbol. Somehow you are actually partaking of Christ mysteriously. Somehow Christ is present in his church in a special way when we partake of communion. One of the things that Wayne Grudem says, who's a, a theologian, who's a Baptist, he says, the problem with the memorial view, Zwingli's view, 
is really it's a doctrine of the real absence of Christ. We think the one place Christ is not is in the elements uh, or something like that. So why do I think that uh, you somehow are partaking of Christ mysteriously? A few reasons. Number one, both ordinances are more than just symbols. Baptism is not just a symbol. It also is a way that God uses to sanctify you, not to justify you. That's by faith alone, but it is a way that God uses to sanctify you. I think the same thing is true with communion. I don't think that these are merely empty symbols, okay? Which leads to my next point. Why have a symbol at all if it is just something you can remember? So if the only point of baptism and communion is for you to remember Christ's sacrifice, you don't need that symbol. You can just remember it when you read in the gospel that Jesus was crucified. If that's the only purpose in communion, we should stop doing communion and each Sunday just read about Jesus' death. That would be a very vivid way to remember what Christ has done for you. Third reason. In the Old Testament, you would eat certain sacrifices as a way of actually fellowshipping with God, okay? In the Old Testament, part of your sacrifice, depending on the type of sacrifice, some sacrifices you don't eat, but some sacrifices you do eat, and it's a way to fellowship with God. Why? Because eating equals fellowship in the Bible. Who you eat with is who you accept. Who you eat with, you eat with your friends, you eat with your family, you eat with the nation of Israel. Why is Peter rebuked in Galatians? Because he stops eating with the Gentiles, which means he's disfellowshipping with them. For those that have been kicked out of a church, we're told not even to eat with such a one. And so there's this idea that you are somehow communing with God when you're partaking of these sacred meals, okay? In the Old Testament, you had to fellowship with others by eating certain ceremonial meals together. In the Old Testament, God commands Israel to party, okay? And he says, if you don't, if you don't stop working on these holy days and hang out with people and eat good food and laugh and have a lot of fun, I will kill you. By the way, is that the God you heard of growing up that will kill you if you do not partake in his parties, okay? Uh, that's what you've got going on in the Old Testament. So notice that the meal is also about fellowshipping with one another, okay? There's a, there's a horizontal and a vertical element to communion. And then lastly, the language in the Bible about communion seems stronger than just a symbol. Let me give you a few passages. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That seems stronger than symbol. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why uh, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Is that anybody's life verse? Anybody have that crocheted on a pillow? Anybody, when they're sick, think to themselves, maybe I've been taking communion in an unworthy manner, okay? Apparently, this seems a little bit stronger than a symbol, because if you do it wrong, God kills you, Okay? John 6, 53 through 58. Now, this passage is kind of linked to uh, another discussion and a miracle of Jesus multiplying loaves and these kind of things, but I still want you to see the kind of language that's used here in John 6. John 6, 53 through 58. Look how strong this is. Tell me if this just seems like a symbol. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, have, uh, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay? Could just be simple. The language there seems a little bit stronger. So let me be clear what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you materially eat Jesus like the Lutheran or the, uh, the Catholic view. What I am saying is somehow when you partake of communion, you are really fellowshipping with Christ. I don't know how, okay? I don't know how. It's mysterious. But something magical, I don't mean that in a, like a fake way, but uh, something magical is happening 
when you partake of communion. Now, I say all of that to say this pastoral thing. Why is this helpful? Anybody here find that Christianity is maybe a little bit more difficult than you thought originally? Okay, anybody? Anybody find that you still struggle with sins you've struggled with for 20 years? Anybody find that you sometimes feel like you're not really growing and you're not really being sanctified? Anybody here ever doubt your salvation and think, maybe I'm not really a Christian because I still have sins and I still have struggles in my life? Anybody or just me? Yeah, probably a lot of us. Here's the benefit of communion. It's a promise that God is sanctifying you every time you partake of it. But Zach, I don't feel sanctified. It doesn't matter. It's a promise God's made to you. doesn't matter how well you're doing. That should be tremendously encouraging. This ritual that we partake of here at Parkway every week is a reminder that though you've blown it, though you've messed up, though I've messed up, though we've sinned a thousand times that week, though we haven't loved God with our whole hearts, though sometimes we don't feel like we're growing, though sometimes we wonder if we're going to make it, it is a reminder where every Sunday Jesus is saying, not only do I promise to keep you saved, promise to sanctify you, promise to, to grow you, but I'm here in a special way. Where two or more are gathered together, there Christ is. That's especially true of communion. Okay, that passage is originally talking about church discipline, a church kind of gathering, but it's also true of communion. So when you partake of communion, you need to realize God is promising something to you and it should encourage you because it means the Spirit is growing you despite your best efforts to mess him up despite your best efforts to mess them up. That's the encouraging thing here with communion. Now, next issue. Who should take communion when it is passed out, okay? Who should you allow to the table? There are some churches in California, of course, that allow your dogs to partake of communion with you, right? You can have your pets come up and partake of the body of Christ. After all, we all know that Jesus was incarnated as a dog. And so uh, you have that at these churches. Those kind of things are ridiculous. Who do you allow to take communion? What about infants? What about kids? What about those that aren't Christians? Who should partake of communion? This is especially big in uh, churches that are more independent or Baptist or congregational, uh, but I want to give you the three big views. Now, they have terrible names. I didn't choose these names because the second two names sound a lot like each other. There's open communion, closed communion, C-L-O-S-E, and then listen to the last one, closed communion, C-L-O-S-E-D. So those last two sound really similar. I didn't make that up. Somebody's really bad at marketing who did these. But anyway, uh, let me give you the three different views of who can partake of communion. The first one is called open communion. Any professing Christian can take communion, even if they're not a member of any local church and even if they have not been baptized. Okay, that's what open communion is. If you ever hear a church say we practice open communion, they're saying any professing Christian can take communion. Doesn't matter if they're a member anywhere. Doesn't matter if they've even ever been baptized. Okay? few things to know about open communion. It's interdenominational. It's interdenominational. Doesn't matter what church you go to, doesn't matter what denomination you go to, as long as you are at least generally an orthodox Christian or at least dis, uh, identify that way, you can partake of communion. In open communion, individual Christians get to determine if they take communion. Notice that that's interesting. The church leadership is saying, here's the elements. You get to pick whether or not you partake of communion. It's very hard to guard the table in this view. Right? So if I say we practice open communion, if you love Jesus, you can partake of the elements, and that's all I say, it's really hard to guard the table against heretics, against people under church discipline, uh, against those who are unrepentant, against those who've not been baptized, etc., whatever it might be. It brings up the question, is communion a Christian ordinance or is it a church ordinance? Is it a Christian ordinance or is it a church ordinance? Is communion something you should just take with your house and your friends or is it something you're supposed to take with the gathered assembly? 
Another thing about open communion, those who practice open communion will often allow someone to partake of communion who is walking in the sin of refusing to be baptized. Notice that that's a sin. Jesus commands you to be baptized. If you know that and you've not done it, that's sin, okay? You're to repent of sin before you partake of communion. Now, let's look at the second view. So that's open communion, kind of a communion free for all. Number two, close communion, not like what you wear on your body. But C-L-O-S-E, like Glenn Close, is that how she spells it? C-L-O-S-E, close communion. Any Christian who is a member of a church within the same or a similar denomination may partake of communion, okay? So this one would say you don't have to be a member at our church, but you have to uh, somehow belong to a church that is of a like faith and practice. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but it has to be similar. So instead of being interdenominational, it is more denominational. This view allows those who have a similar faith and practice to that of your church to partake of communion with you. This view often still requires people to be members of a church somewhere. This view requires that those partaking of communion be baptized Christians in good standing. This view allows for the table to be guarded a bit more than open communion, okay? So this view would basically say if you belong to a church that's of a like faith and practice, you can partake of communion. You're, you're not walking in sin. You're not under church discipline. You've been obedient to be baptized. You can partake of communion. The third view, closed with a D at the end, communion. I wonder how that's going to sound on the recording. They're like, why does it keep going, duh, and there's like this big pop, like pop or whatever, okay. Closed communion. What is closed communion? Only Christians who are official members of your local church in good standing may partake of communion. So whereas open communion is interdenominational, closed communion is denominational, closed communion is congregational, okay? It does the best job of guarding the table of all three views, okay? It makes sure people who are under church discipline or known, in known sin are not taking communion. Notice this next one, the leadership of the church gets to determine who gets to take communion. You don't decide that. The leadership decides it for you based upon whether or not you're in good standing. The problem, though, with this view is that it shows a bit of disunity by not allowing baptized Christians in good standing of other churches to partake of communion with you, okay? So we're going to do a little summary. Let's see how well you've retained this. Without looking at your notes, who wants to give a general overview of open communion? Yeah, you decide as long as you profess to be an Orthodox Christian, okay? What is close communion with an E at the end? What is it? All baptized Christians, All baptized Christians of a similar or a same uh, denominational kind of structure, yeah? And then closed communion? Only someone of the same church. Henry, knocking it out of the park. So that's it. That's good. Now, what is my view? My view, and who cares about my view, but I'll just give you my view anyway. Here's my view. My view is kind of a modified number two. It's kind of a modified close with an E at the end communion. My view is this. My view is that to partake of communion, you should be a Christian who has been baptized, who is not walking in current unrepentant sin, knowing unrepentant sin, okay? So it's very similar to the closed view of communion, only I don't think that you necessarily have to be a member of a local church to partake of communion. So my view is, here's who should take of communion. Do you love Jesus? Are you a Christian? Have you been obedient to baptism? And are you not walking in unrepentant, knowing, habitual sin? Okay? Not even dealing with sin and repenting of it and fighting it. We all fight sins for the rest of our lives. But you, you can't just give yourself over to sin and keep partaking of communion. That's my view. It's kind of a modified uh, close with an E, kind of a modified close uh, view. Now, Melissa Martin's favorite part. Some interesting things about communion and church history. She likes church history. Some, some interesting things about communion and church history. Now, let me just say something about church history. Why do we talk about church history at all? Why can't we just read the Bible? Okay, here's what you need to understand. 
the question is not, do you just read the Bible? The question is, do you read the Bible the way the apostles did? Mormons say they read the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses say they read the Bible. Muslims say they read the Bible. They're still people of the, quote, book, okay? That's not good enough to just read the Bible. Every heretic has their verses. Every heretic reads the Bible. The question is, are you teaching the trustworthy word as taught? Are you passing down the correct interpretation of the Scripture, which would go back to the apostles? That's important to keep in mind. The reason we study church history is not because church history is authoritative in and of itself. What it does, though, is it lets us know what millions of spirit-inspired believers who are way smarter than all of us have thought so we can see where our modern presuppositions might have crept into the text, okay? How do I know that you should not be ordaining a lesbian woman to be a pastor? Because nobody in church history thought that was okay because everyone else read the Bible and they didn't read it through a 21st century American lens. When we study the Bible, we don't just read it by ourselves. That's how you get a cult. You just give a guy a Bible, he goes up in the woods somewhere and comes up with weirdo interpretations. The goal is not to be a good Berean, singular. The goal is to be good Bereans, plural. And part of that community that you study the Bible in includes the millions, if not billions, of Christians throughout church history. So church history is not necessarily always right, okay? But it does mean that it is the starting position. And if you think it's wrong, the burden of proof is on you to show where it's wrong, not the other way around. So... If I sound angry, it's because I'm always angry. Okay, number one. For the entirety of church history, only those who had been baptized were allowed to take communion. That's true, Protestant, Catholic, and Greek Orthodox, okay? Listen to this, uh, this great quote from the Didache, which was written around the first century. It's a helpful kind of manual on Christianity and Christian liturgy in the early church. But let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning this. Do not give what is holy to dogs, there you go. There you go. There's the early church on that. Next, number two. Though an elder or bishop would preside over communion, deacons were those who helped distribute the elements. They would even bring them to the homes of those who were sick or who could not attend. Notice that uh, a lot of times the guys that we have going forward to pass out communion are the deacons. That's part of what deacons have done historically. Uh, whoever's preaching is presiding over communion as kind of the officer over it, uh, and yet the deacons would pass out the elements. In the early church, they would even take them to people's homes. So if somebody was sick or couldn't be there or whatever, they would actually bring uh, communion to them. Number three, the church always used bread. In the West, they used unleavened bread, and in the East, they used leavened bread. The church has always used bread, and this one might throw you off if you grew up Baptist, and real alcoholic wine, okay? They used real alcoholic wine. Now, let me be clear. It's not wrong or bad or sinful if you want to use grape juice, okay? In fact, we don't do all of the elements exactly like they're doing it. We don't pass around one loaf. We don't pass around one cup. We, we modify it a little bit for the sake of practicality, but I think we're still being faithful enough to the symbol. So I don't think that you have to have, you know, alcoholic wine or something like that. But if that shocks you that the church has always been okay with people drinking and even commanded it in communion, let me guess some things about you. You're an American, probably Methodist or Baptist, who grew up post-prohibition, okay? That's when people started using grape juice instead of wine in communion, was the, during the era of prohibition. There was a Methodist minister, a guy named Thomas Welsh. You ever heard of Welsh's grape juice? He's the founder of that. He was a Methodist minister who didn't teach against drunkenness like the Bible does. He taught against alcohol and therefore produced Welsh's grape juice, made a ton of money by uh, giving that to people to use in the, uh, the sacrament. Okay? Number four. Part of the reason the early church began emphasizing Christ's presence in the elements of communion was to fight heretics who denied that Jesus was really human or who thought all physical things were bad. The official focus on transubstantiation was more of a medieval doctrine than an early church doctrine. Now, this is interesting. 
Why do Roman Catholics hold that the elements literally become the material body and blood of Jesus? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But in the early church, here's one of the reasons they started emphasizing that, to fight heresy, okay? Our view of Jesus, by the way, is that he is truly God and truly man. Do you believe both of those? If he's not God, he can't save you. And if he's not man, he can't represent you for salvation. It's not just that he looks like a man. He's not uh, just driving around this like human body, like this little God in the machine or something like that. He's truly human. Jesus was a fetus and he cried. The little Lord Jesus, some crying he makes, okay? Because he's a little baby. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. He uh, suffered. He uh, wrestles within his two wills in the Garden of Gethsemane, his human will and his divine will and these kind of things. He is truly human. So there were people in the early church that were heretics denying that. And so one of the things the church did to combat that was to emphasize Jesus's humanity. There was also false teaching in the early church known as Gnosticism. The Greek word gnosko means I know. Gnosis is knowledge. And what a Gnostic believes is that everything physical is bad, right? The, the body's a prison for the soul, if you've ever heard that language. <clears throat> everything physical is bad, and physical stuff is yuck, and the body is yuck, and walls and trees and mountains, yuck. Get, get out of all this physical stuff. What's good is just what's spiritual. And so part of what the church had to do is say, that's not right. God made everything good. When he created the physical universe, he said it is very good. What's physical is not what's bad. What's sinful is what's bad. Your body's not bad. When you use your body in a sinful, lustful way, that's bad, okay? And so what the early church is doing in an attempt to fight false teachers who are saying physical things are bad is they use communion as a way to try to do that. Now, I don't think that's the best way to do that. I think you just teach people through the Bible. But anyway, that's kind of where that element starts to develop. And then it really becomes a, a big thing and, and changes and takes on these kind of uh, uh, Aristotelian elements in the Middle Ages, okay? Number five, St. <clears throat> Augustine's view of the sacraments would be the majority view for most of church history. He held that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an invisible yet genuine grace. That's a pretty good definition. Now, we wouldn't agree with uh, uh, Augustine's view that the sacraments work in and of themselves, even if you don't have faith. We wouldn't agree with his view on things like infant baptism, but this definition is a pretty good uh, explanation. If someone were to ask you, what is an ordinance? I visited your church. Why do you all partake of this little cracker and this weird cup of juice at the end of the service? Why did you dunk a guy in what looked like to be a water coffin? What's happening here? And you were to explain to them, this is not a bad definition, that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an invisible yet genuine grace, okay? God does something in saving us, and the church's job is to act that out physically, so when God saves you, you're washed of your sins, you're given new life, and you have hope and resurrection. The church's job is to show that physically through baptism. When you become a Christian, you have union with Christ. You belong to Christ and his church. The church shows that in communion, okay? That's why it's called communion, okay? Uh, when somebody is walking in unrepentant sin and God has rejected them because they are not a Christian, most likely, or they are at least not showing themselves to do that, the church then acts that out physically with excommunication. The church backs up the decisions of God. The church doesn't determine the decisions of God. That's kind of Roman Catholic. In Protestantism, the church backs up the decisions of God. The church's job is to enact down here what's physical, what's already true of somebody spiritually in God's sight, okay? Number six, the early, in the early church, there was an emphasis on asking the spirit to bless the elements. In the Middle Ages, the emphasis became the transformation of the bread and wine into the blood and, or body and blood of Christ, okay? Let me quote uh, Brinegar of Tours. The bread and the wine which are placed on the altar. Notice, it's not an altar. Let me get on another soapbox. If you've ever heard a church say that this is the altar, come forward to the altar, put the bread on the altar, that's too Catholic for me, 
You know why it's called an altar? Because Catholic, altar, because Catholics believe you're sacrificing Jesus again. No bad. It's not that. It's a table, and this is a stage. It is not an altar, okay? It is not an altar. The bread and the wine, which are placed on the altar, are after consecration, not only the sacrament, but the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that these are sensibly handled and broken by the hands of the priest and crushed by the teeth of the faithful, not only sacramentally, but in reality, okay? Pope Alexander III, in 1140, coined the phrase transubstantiation to refer to what happened at communion. When did transubstantiation become official church doctrine? Is it the third century? Is it the second century? No. It's in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council. Uh, the church officially decided that transubstantiation would be official Roman Catholic church doctrine. Okay? In medieval Catholicism, the laity were only allowed to partake of the bread while the priest could partake of the bread and the wine. They didn't want to risk spilling Jesus' blood by passing a cup to everyone. However, since the whole Christ is present in both elements, a view called concomitance, the people still partook of Jesus' blood, even though they just took of the bread. This is called communion in one kind. Okay, what do I mean by that? It was a lot of information. If you believe that the bread and the wine becomes the material body and blood of Jesus, what happens if you pass around a cup and somebody spills Jesus on the floor? That's really disrespectful. And so what they said is, let's just keep this out of the hands of those bumbling people, and we will take it on their behalf. Okay? So the priests would partake of the bread and the wine for you. The people were only allowed to have the wafer, okay? Now, if you say, well, wait a second, we have to partake of Jesus' body and his blood, they would say, stop cutting Jesus up. Jesus, the whole Jesus is in the element, including, including his blood. So when you partake of the bread, you are taking of body and blood, regardless of what element you are taking, okay? Remember, you're partaking of the whole Christ, not just his deity, or not just his body, or something like that. You're partaking of the whole Christ. But even today in Roman Catholicism, the laity only partakes of the bread. Okay, they only partake of the bread. What's known as communion in one kind. Number nine, Protestants, amen, denied transubstantiation and allowed the laity to partake of the wine as well as the bread. This is called communion in both kinds, okay? You'll notice if you're a Protestant, you get to partake of the cup and the bread, and you can thank Martin Luther slash Paul for that, okay? Number 10, Protestants moved the pulpit to the center of the worship service because the primary activity of worship was the preaching of the word. Catholics had the altar in the center and the pulpit off to the side because the central act of worship for them was the Eucharist. Protestants also removed the guardrail in front of the communion table to separate the priest from the laity in Roman Catholicism. What you do with your church building says something about your theology. How you dress in church says something about your theology. Why do we dress down here? Because one of the things we're trying to say is you don't have to clean yourself up before coming to Jesus. That's the opposite of the gospel. You come as you are, okay? You, the Bible actually tells us not to dress up in church, not to have braided hair and pearls and all these kind of things that draw attention to us because the focus is not on us. Why do we have the preaching at the center of the church? Because that's the central act of worship for Protestants. If you were Roman Catholic, you would typically have a pulpit off to the side, and you would have the communion altar, for them it is an altar, communion altar up front, and there's a guardrail that separates the priest from the yucky laity, the not holy ones. So you have to come down and kneel, and I will take no wine for you. I will take the wafer, and I will place it on your tongue, and you can partake of that, and you do so this side of the rail. The Protestant reformers said, there's a lot that's broken here. All Christians are equally priests. You and I are equally close to God in Christ. Amen? I don't have magic priest powers just because this is my vocation. So what they did is they removed the guardrail and said, we're not going to have that anymore. There shouldn't be a separation between uh, laity and uh, the, the clergy. And they moved the pulpit to the center 
to say the preaching of the word is what is central in Protestant worship, okay? To quote one man, the Bible and the Bible alone is the religion of Protestants. And so you'll notice here at Parkway that we, though we don't have a pulpit, that's not the idea. It's what rests on the pulpit that's valuable, the Bible. The preaching of the word is central, okay? It's central. You don't get anything from the sacraments in Reformed theology that you don't also get from the word. You just get them in a different way. The Word contains the message of salvation. That's how you're washed and saved. The Word contains this idea that you have communion with God and other Christians. That's already in the Word. The sacraments simply show you that a different way, but it's the same material content. Same material content, okay? Number 11, for Zwingli, the sacraments were more about your promise to God. For Luther and Calvin, the sacraments were more about God's promise to you. Okay, now I think there's an element here of both, but I think that the bigger emphasis, both in baptism and in communion, is God's promise to you. Do you believe that? So when I was baptized, I made vows to follow Jesus, to obey his word, to do all these things. How many times have I broken those vows? About a bajillion, okay? In, in ba- my baptism and also in communion, God has made promises to me, to resurrect me, to be faithful to me, all those kind of things. How many of those promises has he broken? Zero, Okay. It is more about God's promise to you than it is your promise to him in the elements of a communion and in baptism. Number 12, early Baptists took communion every week but then became afraid that it would become too much of a ritual like in Catholicism. So they switched to once a month. Reformed churches often did it four times a year. Okay? Jeff will talk a little bit about how often we should do communion in his talk next week on uh, communion in the New Testament, but just from a, a historical perspective, Baptist originally would take it every week, and then you got some of these objections that you still sometimes hear in Baptist churches. Well, if we do it every week, it'll lose its meaning. Okay, well, then we should stop teaching the Bible every week, and we should stop praying every week, and we should stop. Just because you do something a bunch doesn't mean that it loses its meaning. You have to focus on the meaning still, Okay. And so they were afraid that it would become too much of a ritual, so they started doing it once a month instead of every week. Uh, Why did Reformed churches do it four times a year? Now, this is interesting because this is actually political. So uh, Calvin is the leader in a town called Geneva, or Geneva if you're there today, but uh, typically we'd say Geneva if we're uh, uh, English-speaking people. So he is in this this kind of uh, city-state known as Geneva, but they're under the protection of a larger city-state known as Bern. Okay, Bern, Switzerland. And Bern takes it four times a year, and so to help capitulate to them, that's why Reformed the- uh, theologians decide to start taking it four times a year. It wasn't based on what the Bible says or any of that. It was based on this political necessity of not making our allies upset. Okay, interesting. Number 13, everyone agreed that people should not take communion who are living in unrepentant sin. Let me tell you a great story about this. In Geneva, you had this group of guys known as libertines. What does that sound like? What was it? I'm sorry, here's what I heard. They're what? Uh, Not libertarian. A libertarian is someone who believes in small government. Uh, A libertine is someone who believes you can do whatever you want to ethically. By the way, that's always how people pitch sin. They assume that sin equals more liberty, where in the Bible it's the opposite. The more enslaved you are to sin, the less free you are. The more you know Christ, the more free you are. But anyway, you had this group of people named libertines, and they basically said, we're Christians, and because we're Christians and we're forgiven, we can do whatever we want. And so they were known of being, you know, especially sexually promiscuous. And so one time during a service where they were going to have communion, Calvin was preaching, and he would not allow the libertines to partake of communion because of their sexual immorality. So they drew their swords, and Calvin throws his body over the elements in communion and is like, you're going to have to kill me to take communion. That's guarding the table, okay? 
That is guarding the table because the elements are holy and it's only for those who are repentant. Last one, 14. And then Jeffrey, if you want to start making your way up here. Catholics call their worship service mass, okay, which has two parts, preaching and communion. The word comes from a Latin phrase, ite missa est, which means go, you are dismissed. So here's how the early church would do it. When they would have a service, the service consisted of two parts, preaching of the word and partaking communion. The preaching of the word was open to everybody, okay? The preaching of the word was open to everybody, whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, baptized, not baptized, whatever, it was open to everybody. And then after that, they would dismiss those who were not Christians. They would dismiss those who were what are known as catechumens, those who are Christians who've not been baptized yet. And they would only partake of communion with those who are Christians who have been baptized. But that, that act of... Uh, uh, Really, it's more of the act of dismissal out into the world. By saying, go, you're dismissed, they're saying, now that the worship service is over, go be Christians out in the world. But that's where you get this idea of uh, Roman Catholics calling their service Mass. So Mass is the whole thing. It's not just uh, taking of the Eucharist and communion, but there is some things about communion in church history. Jeffrey, come up here with some of those sweet questions. All right, a few <laughs> questions. The first one begins... As you think all good questions should begin. In your professional opinion, why do you think Jesus would leave something as important as communion, quote, open to interpretation, unquote, for Christians to determine exactly what he meant hundreds of years down the road? You want to start on that one? Or you want me to? You start on it. Great. Uh, so I would say uh, he hasn't left it, quote, unquote, open to interpretation. I would say that uh, any of his word can be distorted by Christians over time. And so that's like saying, why has he left justification open to interpretation? Uh, just because Roman Catholics uh, in the medieval period uh, distorted the church's teaching on that. Or why does he leave it open to interpretation as to whether or not David Koresh is the Messiah or something like that? There are always going to be false teachers who are going to distort and uh, pervert God's word. That does not mean that God has been uh, spoken unclearly or that he has left something uh, open to interpretation. So uh, in talking about the different views that, uh, that Christians have held throughout time, we are not in any way implying that, A, we're not implying that those aren't necessarily Christians. B, we're not implying that just because there are multiple views, four views or whatever it might be throughout church history, that all of those views are, are valid. And so as Zach said, there is much more to commend to the third or fourth view uh, of what communion is. So um, that'd be the way I would answer it. Anything to add? Yeah, let, let me add just a bigger cultural comment. There's this idea, and this is very prevalent in our culture, just get on social media or the news or anything. The view is if there's a bunch of views, therefore we can't know the right one. Okay, that's the idea. There's a bunch of views and a bunch of smart people have held a bunch of views, therefore there's not a right one. That idea is ridiculous. Every time there's a right view, there's an almost infinite number of wrong views, but just because there's a bunch of views doesn't mean that we don't know one with certainty. Let's take math, for example. Two plus two equals four. You know how many other things it could equal that people could just put the wrong answer for? Any other number, okay? That doesn't mean that one is not true. Jesus and Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, is the true religion. You can't say, well, there's a bunch of other ones, so we don't know. Of course, a bunch of people believe dumb and bad things. That doesn't mean that there's not a right one. God has written his word with what we believe is known as the perspicuative scripture, the clarity of scripture. The problem is not the Bible. The Bible's clear. The problem is us. We come to the Bible with these fogged up glasses, and those glasses are fogged up because of sin and our human limitations and our presuppositions. 
And so when we're praying for God to help us understand the Bible, we're not asking him to give us the meaning. It's already in the text. We're asking him to defog our glasses. We're asking him to help us see what's already clearly in the scriptures despite our presuppositions. And so don't let somebody tell you just because they think it's unclear or they think it's difficult that, uh, that it really is. I think the fact that uh, uh, so many things have been believed by so many in church history actually speaks to the unity of what the scriptures teach, not the diversity, but there you go. Yeah, I just would also add, uh, we talked about this in Romans 16, there is a view in our culture that says if you hold a strong opinion on something or if you hold to a strong conviction on something, that that is arrogant. And biblically, the exact opposite is, uh, is true. So there is a way that uh, I can definitively say if my daughter asks me what's two plus two and I can say four, that's not proud, that's not arrogant. I don't have to go and repent after saying that. Now, if I look at my daughter and I say, hey, dummy, the answer is four, that's an example of pride. So just simply holding to something strongly, holding to a conviction strongly, even a theological conviction that a lot of people in church history don't agree with isn't necessarily a sign of, of pride. Pride is more of an issue of the heart and not necessarily a confidence in, in God's word. Uh, next question. Uh, it's kind of two-part. I'll take the first part and then you take uh, cleanup. Uh, first, how do I know if I should partake of communion? And then the related to that, should I take communion if I'm struggling with, uh, with some sin? So uh, you should take communion if you love and trust Jesus, you believe the gospel, uh, if you have been baptized, and if you are not under church discipline or walking in any unconfessed, habitual, unrepentant sin. That then leads into the question of what if I'm engaged or I'm struggling in some sort of sin? So do you want to give some sort of thoughts on that? So there is a huge difference between battling sin and giving yourself over to sin. Huge difference. The Christian life is the first one. You're never done battling sin this side of eternity. The second one is what lost people do. They say, I feel this way, so I'm going to give myself over to it. So my question to you is, if you're struggling with some sin, even some habitual sin, which we all struggle with, okay, whether it's pride, body image issues, anxiety, pornography, uh, greed, whatever your particular sin is, you'll probably have a tendency to struggle with some sins more than others. The question you need to ask yourself is, am I fighting that? Am I giving that to Jesus? Do I not want that thing? Do I want to be free from that thing? That's the thing you're looking at. So if you have blown it a thousand times this week and you have just had an awful week spiritually, but you love Christ and you're repentant and you're asking God for help, that's who communion is for. Welcome to the table. This idea that you should clean yourself up and then come before God in communion is backwards. The idea is if you're repentant, you're going to communion because you're not perfect. If you're perfect in here and you didn't sin at all this week, you don't need communion. Communion's for sinners. Communion's for broken people who need grace. And so my question for you is, are you fighting the sin? Are you seeking to put it to death? Have you repented to God of it, even though you still struggle with it, even though you may commit it again in the future? That is, you can take communion. If you, however, say, I have a mistress, and I'm not going to repent, and I don't care, I'm just going to keep doing that because I love my mistress, that is unrepentant, okay? That's kind of an extreme example, but you get it. It can be that with any sin, and so that would be my, my big thing. If you're a sinner, take communion. If you're a sinner who refuses to repent, that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is a repentant sinner. A lost person is an unrepentant sinner. Those are the difference, so. Um, was the Passover feast only symbolic? in order for Jews to remember their deliverance from, uh, from Egypt. So my, my quick thought is the only problem that I have with that uh, is the word only there. So there's a tendency uh, in our hearts, there's a tendency in interpreting scriptures to try to reduce something down to its lowest common denominator. And, uh, and so is the Passover, was the Passover feast symbolic? 
Is communion symbolic? Is baptism symbolic? Yes. Is it only symbolic? That's where you get into uh, to troubles whenever you try to reduce it down. It's like uh, kind of like talking about, is Jesus only a man? Well, he's certainly a man, but he's not only a man. Uh, does the Bible only speak of the fundamental equality between the genders, or does it also speak of uh, certain uh, role distinctions? And so anytime that we kind of stress that sort of uh, only element, we can kind of obscure and dilute what the Scripture would, uh, would say. You have other thoughts on that? Was the Passover feast only symbolic? Yeah, I mean, so you, you could ask the same question, I think, with sacrifices, right? Hebrews says that Jesus is really the ultimate sacrifice, so were the other ones only symbolic? I'd say they were more than only symbolic. If you didn't do them, you were still under God's wrath and would be condemned. So I, I agree. But I also think this, there are certain things in the Bible that can be primarily symbolic, but when you take them into account with all of what Scripture says, they take on a greater meaning. So primarily, I think that uh, the Passover meal was primarily symbolic. I think that the first institution of communion, the only way the disciples would have understood that is symbolic, okay? They, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. They're not saying this, the cup that they're drinking is literally his blood or something like that. However, once we take into account the entirety of what the Bible teaches about Passover, communion, the way God works through ordinances, then I think you have to say that it takes on more than just a symbol. Two more. Uh, could a modified open view of communion be correct? Why not just allow the individuals to decide for themselves? You want to start or you want me? Sure. Uh, for the same reason that we don't allow people to just baptize themselves. Okay, we want to make sure that you really understand what you're doing. We want to make sure you understand who Christ is and what the gospel is and what communion is. You can't have a modified view of open communion or it's no longer open communion. If you're just going to allow anybody to take communion based on what they say, they could be under church discipline and just say, well, I still think I can take it. They could be a non-Christian and say, I'm just going to take it. It's up to me. They could be a heretic and say, I'm going to take it because it's up to me. They could be not baptized and know that and not care and still take it. And so part of the job of church leadership is to help guide people to say, this is what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't just say, take communion. It says, take communion, assuming all these other things are true about you. Okay, so keep that in mind. And so I think if you have open communion or even a modified open communion, you're saying you get to now make the rules. So Jeff said this last week, the command is not to be baptized. The command is to be dunked as a believer. That's what baptized means. In the same way, the command is not eat bread and wine. The command is as a believer who is repentant, who has been baptized, eat bread and wine as you remember Christ. And so I don't think you can do that with the open communion view. But. Yeah, I would just add... Um so if there are potential consequences, biblically, there is something about taking, uh, partaking of the meal in an unworthy manner. We read in 1 Corinthians that some people were sick, some people were dying. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, more next week. That's kind of a scary thought. So uh, imagine that you practice an open communion. The people in your congregation may or may not know that there is a severity and a weight and a gravity to this meal that could potentially... Uh, they could be partaking of it in an unworthy manner and thus drinking or eating themselves to, to, uh, to judgment. And, uh, and so is it loving for a parent to simply hand their kid a firearm and say, I'm going to just simply let you decide if you want to play with this or not? No, that's unloving because they don't understand the dangers of it. And so an, what an open view of communion is going to do is basically going to say, you may or may not understand the dangers and, uh, and the benefits of this, but I'm just simply going to allow you to decide whether or not uh, you're going to partake. So, last question. I know you don't want to answer this at all, so I will. Uh, I'll take it. Why doesn't Parkway use wine for uh, communion? So, uh, as Zach said, uh, I think that the uh, there is a difference between what the early church practices and what is absolutely essential. 
And uh, so the early church, whenever they're going to partake of communion, uh, typically what they would do is they would have a larger meal uh, with meat and vegetables and all of these sorts of things. And then in the course of that meal, they would break bread. That bread would always be a single loaf of bread in order to symbolize the unity of the body. There would be a tearing of that and then a distributing of that. There would be only one cup. We have made the decision for logistical reasons, for hygienic reasons. We're not going to simply pass around one cup and everybody get the flu or whatever it might be. And uh, likewise, when it comes to the uh, distribution of the, the bread. And so there are elements in which we are kind of uh, moving away from the biblical practice, but we're staying as close as we possibly can. This is an area, though, just to be honest, this is an area that the elders have uh, at least had minimal conversation about. It's on the docket for us to uh, talk about in the future if we would ever want to go to, probably would not go to a point where we would only offer uh, alcoholic wine, but might at some point go to where we would have uh, the, the option where we would give both alcoholic wine and juice and give you the option of, of which you would partake. But again, this is, I, I'm speaking as one elder. This would be something that the entire elder body would have to kind of wrestle with and, uh, and work through. So you can certainly be praying for us as we, as we kind of uh, work through that. So do you want to add anything? Sure. Really? No, you said I'll say nothing. I'll say Man, something not about great. this, but that's related. I think there's a fear if you hear that the church used, has always used alcoholic wine, I think the first fear that pops into our mind is, what about alcoholics? What about those who are Christians that struggle with alcoholism? So let me just blow your mind with a few things. Throughout church history, there have always been alcoholics, but they've still been commanded to partake of wine and communion. Why? Because if you're a Christian, there's no such thing as an unbeatable addiction. The idea of addiction is this idea that is victim language, right? I, I'm a sex addict, or I'm an alcoholic, or I'm a whatever. I just, I'm a victim. I, I have no say in this. If you have the Spirit, you always have the right to say no to sin, period. So how come people, even throughout church history, even if they struggled with alcoholism, could still partake of alcoholic wine because they believed that they had the Spirit? And so, uh, so I, now, let me be clear. Can you be more chemically inclined to certain things? yes. Can you ever be so chemically inclined that it causes you to sin, though you have the Spirit and you cannot say no? No. So part of what we have to change is this idea that the way that culture defines addiction as we're merely a passive victim and we don't have a say versus a Christian. I do think a lost person can be so addicted that they're not in control because the Bible's clear they cannot do what's righteous. I think a Christian, though, who's regenerate, has the right to say no to that. So throughout all of church history, even the guy that struggles with alcoholism would have wine in communion and then hang out with his friends and be okay. And so just keep that, uh, keep that in mind. So, Do you want to pray? I want you to pray. Great. Father, thank you for uh, your love for us. Thank you for the gift of, uh, of communion that you have given to us that we might be encouraged, that we might be strengthened, that we might be uh, nourished. I pray that we as a people, as we think about uh, this topic this week and, uh, and again next week as we look at communion in the New Testament, uh, Lord, that you would give us a deeper appreciation, uh, that we would uh, both recognize the severity and the gravity of this act and also the overwhelming blessing that it is that we get to uh, regularly partake of the body and blood of your Son and, uh, and that you have provided for us nourishment and hope as a sign of your great love for us. And, uh, and so I pray that you would prepare our hearts as we go forth from here, not only to sing and to pray and to hear your word, but also to get to partake in that which we've just thought about. And so bless us now as we uh, receive your word and receive the elements. We pray it all uh, because you're a good father who gives good gifts. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.